Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and this episode we are joined by poet and novelist Erica L. Sanchez to discuss her brand new book, a memoir and essays called Crying in the Bathroom. This book has been called everything from raunchy, hilarious, and unapologetic to insightful, poignant, and brutally honest. It deals with topics including sex, depression, and religion. And I talked today with Erica about her upbringing as a Mexican-American misfit, her award-winning career, reproductive justice, and a lot more. Our book club pick for July is Season of Migration to the North by Tayeb Salah. And we will be discussing this book on July 27th with Elamine Abdel Mahmoud. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. Listen, if you love this show and you want more of it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join The Stacks Pack. It's a community for book lovers and lovers of The Stacks. We've got bonus episodes, a super duper active Discord community, our monthly book club meetups, and more. It's also a great way for you to show your support for the work we do on this independent podcast every single week. Head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join. And while we're here, let's do a quick thank you to our newest members, Amy Nicolaisen Kleiner, Dakota Collar, Jada Thompson, Zykia Guiacabo, and Emily Lausma. Thank you all so much. And thank you to the entire Stacks Pack for your support. And now it's time for my conversation with Erica L. Sanchez. All right, everybody. I'm very excited today. I am joined by Erica L. Sanchez, who is the author of Crying in the Bathroom. Erica, welcome to the Stacks. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to have you and talk about this memoir and essays. But before we dive in, I always ask people to start here. In about 30 seconds or so, can you tell the folks about the book? Sure. Crying in the Bathroom is a memoir that spans a great deal of time and subject matter, and um, it is written in essay form. I cover a lot of, you know, ideas and concepts of gender, identity. I feel like this memoir really encompasses a lot of what young brown women go through uh, when navigating a very white world, a very misogynist world. And so, yeah, it's been quite a journey to to get to this point. Yeah. I think what I appreciated about the book so much is there were so many things that I could relate to. And then so many things where I was like, wow, I've never thought about that in that way. Like it was like, oh, I needed an author to explain my life to me. (laughs) Beautiful. Yeah. I love it. I want to talk about humor. Uh, one of the early essays in your book, you first of all, you talk about your laugh. And so I'm really curious because your book is not published yet, but it will be very soon. When people are listening, it will be out in the world. Have you prepared yourself for people trying to make you laugh so that they can hear your laugh? Because that's all I could think about when I was oh reading that God. section. No. Oh, that's awful. I hate it. I was like, oh my gosh, she's going to have to laugh because like she talks about her laugh and describes it. And like, I need, did you laugh in the audiobook when you were reading it? I may have like chuckled or something, but I didn't really laugh, laugh. 
You didn't let um, loose. The thing about me is that if, if it's not funny, I'm not going to laugh like that. Right. So it's just, it, it, it can't happen on command. So I hope no one's feelings get hurt because, uh, yeah, I never even considered such a thing. But now that you say it, oh my. Yeah, get ready. It's coming. Everyone's going to be like telling you knock knock jokes like, okay, Erica, let's see if we can make this happen. So, okay. But you talk about humor in the book, which I really appreciated. Your family, you're Mexican. I'm black. I feel like there is something about being in a community of the global majority or whatever, where we talk shit and make make fun of people. You know, black folks call it playing the dozens or whatever. I'm wondering, like, when did you realize that everybody else, white people, didn't do that? Like when, at what point in your life were you like, oh, other people don't talk shit and make fun of how their cousins look and like, <laughs> you know, like how, how did, like, when yeah. did that click for you? It's uh, a rude awakening when that happens uh, because it was something that I was so accustomed to. And then all of a sudden I go out into the working world and that's when I realized that White people weren't laughing like that. They weren't <laughs> talking shit like that. You know, it, I felt very alienated in many spaces because I didn't think that I could express myself and, and be who I truly was. And so it's a sad moment when you realize that they're not they're not with you. <laughs> you know, they're not really there to be your friend. And so not to say that all white people this and that, but, um, you know, white supremacy, I find it to be quite humorless. I don't really understand it. I think it's gross. A lot of people subscribe to this, even if they don't know consciously. And so that's just a, a world that I also am very confused by. And mm. actually, I should mention, I was married to a white person, and that was very jarring um, <laughs> to step into this family and to see, um, like, the polite conversation and just, like, the quiet evenings and the very subdued dinners, you know? I was yeah. like, what is this? <laughs> I don't understand. How so, do you adjust? How did you, or how do you adjust in those spaces? Like, how how does it how does it make you respond? Like, how do you change or try to like make yourself feel comfortable or safe in those spaces? You know, sometimes I feel that I can't be myself because it won't be accepted. So I kind of shut down and I I distance myself from the group um, because I don't feel like I'm going to be accepted um and and so i do that or if i'm feeling extra spicy i will (laughs) crack jokes that are just really um uncomfortable for people because i don't believe in in making myself small for people at the same time you know and so it's just like it's really how much i want to expose of myself Mm -hmm. and how much i want to give And um, there are times where I just I really want to go there and I really want to talk about race when no one else wants to. And um, there are times where I'm just like exhausted and I just want to eat my meal. You know, yeah, yeah, (laughs) I can relate fully. This is all very, again, things that I related to in the book. Um, The other thing about humor that I really loved and I don't I last night I spent a lot of time like trying to think about how to ask this question, but I realize it's not a question. So I sort of just want you to talk about this. But sure. You talk about like sort of being vulgar and crass, which is like, you know, speaks to my soul. You talk about humor and, you know, you also in a later essay, you talk a lot about like beauty standards and race. And to me, I just kept thinking that like all of these things are really connected, like this idea of femininity or being a woman and what's beautiful and what's allowed and what's too vulgar and what's not. And I'm wondering, like, I guess, sort of how you grappled with those things, being a Mexican-American, being someone who is vulgar, being someone who has a loud laugh, someone who wears bright colors, someone who takes up space in this world. And then I guess also not just how you deal with it, but how you decided to like funnel that into the book, because that's like a whole different, like you have to live it and then you have to write it. Yeah. I mean, I never intended to write a memoir, honestly, like it, it didn't come until, you know, when I started writing it, which was almost seven years ago now. Um, 
I, I didn't imagine that I was that interesting, to be quite honest. <laughs> but as I started writing essay by essay, I started to realize that I had a lot to say about a lot of different things. Mm. And I saw it as, as a book of essays. And then it was then like rebranded as a memoir, which is fine. Um, I, I see it as a memoir now as well. It, it has a narrative arc. But um, yeah, to be a person with like that kind of, I guess, spirit, personality, whatever, it's not easy because not everyone likes it. Not everyone appreciates right. it. People don't like that I'm really honest oftentimes or that I, I talk about racism and misogyny and homophobia openly, um, that I, I, I talk about abortion very casually. You know, I feel that. I became this person because I was tired of being told who I was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And I always fought against the labels, the boundaries set for me. I, I didn't want to be like a, a meek Mexican girl who just like stayed at home and, you know, doted on her family. Like that mm. wasn't going to be me. And it was pretty upsetting to, you know, my mom, my dad, that I was so rebellious and so adventurous. They never imagined such a thing. And so I wrote this book and I channeled all of that into this book because I wanted young women to feel free to be themselves. Mm -hmm. Even if it makes people feel weird, it makes your tia uncomfortable or your dad doesn't agree with your career choice. You know, like <laughs> I have students, uh, female students, women students who are so bright and so ambitious. And then they're like, well, my dad won't let me major in such and such. I'm like, you don't have to listen to your dad. You know, like, I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble one day for that. But I'm, I just I want young women to take up the same kind of space, to be who they are, to call out the truth and call out injustices. Because, I mean, shit's really scary right now. Yeah. You know, like yeah. we have to just, you know, have a, a resilient spirit and and we have to be willing to to take risks if we want things to change. Yeah. I mean, speaking of things being really scary, we're recording this the first week of July. I, as you mentioned, your book, you started writing seven years ago. Um, I wonder if you had any idea that the world that your book would be coming out into would be this world where this book feels like very on the nose. I mean, I read the book two weeks ago and we're going to try to prevent any spoilers, but one of the jobs you had was working in PR for a reproductive rights organization. And, you know, you talk candidly in the book about abortion and about parenthood. You're a parent now. And I'm just wondering, like, how how, how do you feel about this book that, like, talks about these things coming out in a time where, like, these rights are being taken away? And, and like, I think, you know, the conversation around this book I feel will center on those things more than maybe it would have if it came out last summer. So I'm just wondering like how you as the author reckon with that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I do not want it to be relevant at all. Right. I wish <laughs> right, all right, of right, this right. was of the past and we were living in some sort of utopia, but that is not the case. And no. the timing of it is a bit startling. I, <laughs> I just did not envision this. At all. I mean, we lived through Trump and that was traumatizing enough. And then now all of these other things have happened and I'm just really scared. And I, I feel like perhaps this book could get people to have certain conversations to, to perhaps encourage women to speak up about their own experiences, um, to show the world how, you know, reproductive rights are human rights. And it's a life and death situation for many, many people. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's scary. I don't like it one bit. I feel like I'm going to be on quite a roller coaster for the next few months yeah. talking about these issues. And, you know, I'm trying to take care of myself as I do it so I don't, you know, unravel, which yeah. is very possible for me. 
Right. I mean, that's the other thing that you talk about a lot in the book is mental health. You are very candid about your struggles and the things that you've gone through and the ways that you, you know, you find peace and a, a lot about Buddhism and meditation and these types of things. There's two questions here. I'll start with the first one, which is how did you know when you were ready to actually write about these things publicly versus having like dealt with them privately? I've, sp I've spoken to many memoirists and there's always like this moment of like, okay, now I'm ready to actually put this out publicly, which is very different from now I have moved past this moment in my life personally with my loved ones. Yeah. It was intense, you know, to write about that sort of trauma, um, the trauma of of depression and having to survive like the ups and downs of it all. Um, I felt very emotional as I was writing. And I think in writing that I purged something mm. from me. And then it's it, it's required distance. You know, I couldn't write about the thing that was happening at that time. I had right. to wait because it's impossible to be objective. Not that it's no, it's, it is impossible to be objective regardless, but it's even more so difficult to, to write with clarity when you're like in the muck. Right. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. I always wrote when I was ready to write it. And so mm -hmm. like the, the essay on Buddhism, I wrote several, several years ago and that just came to me. And then, um, you know, I wrote about like, a few bouts of, of very severe depression. And, and so I needed time to heal from that in order mm -hmm. to be able to write about it um, because it felt so raw for so long. And in writing it, I healed something. And in publishing, I feel like I'm healing something as well because I'm not the only one who's experienced these types of things. And mm -hmm. so I want people to feel seen by it and to feel like they're not the only ones who have experienced such a thing. And so um, I think, you know, talking to people about the book, meeting readers, it, it's it's going to be part of my healing process because mm. I that means a lot to me. You know, the fact that I could have, you know, I, I took something that was so personal and painful and I turned it into something very public. Um, but that was for a greater good. You know, it mm -hmm. wasn't for attention or whatever. Mm -hmm. It was like, mm -hmm. this, I want to make art with this and right. I want people to respond to it. Do you, you said, you know, you're, you're preparing for this the next few months and like having to talk about all this stuff. What are some of, if you don't mind sharing, this might be too personal, but what are some of the ways that you're kind of planning to protect yourself, take care yeah. of yourself? Yeah, I can talk about that. I feel so safe in my house you know I love where I live um my husband is like my best friend I know everyone says that but that <laughs> that's the truth and and we talk every night we have like these really good discussions and we spend a lot of time with the kids and we you know cook and just make it a really pleasurable environment to be in and I think that that's really what grounds me that's really what matters to me I like to disconnect from the internet when I'm with my daughter or with my husband or um reading whatever I don't I don't like have my phone near me I I feel like I need times in which I just have to live in this world mm -hmm. um because it's very easy to get caught up in the the world of, of the internet. Um, right. and, and I, I just don't want to be there. Yeah. Like, I want to participate, but I don't want to live there. Right. 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 I wonder, were there things, your first book is a novel. Were there things that you learned from that book tour? And like the, you, I mean, your book was a major success. It was, you know, national book award finalist and all this stuff. So I'm wondering like, were there things that you're like, next time I'm going to do it this way? And if oh, yeah. so, would you share any of those things? Yeah, I can't say yes to everything. Okay, is... love this. Love this boundary. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm done with that. I was very scrappy. I, was, I hustled for a long time. I don't have to do that anymore. I could be selective about who I say yes to. People get their feelings hurt, but, you know, too bad. I don't really care. Um, Thanks for I'm... saying yes to me. <laughs> 
appreciate it. I mean, I say yes to things that I want to do, but you know, there's so many uh, requests that I'm like, I can't, I I can't respond to this all. Um, And so just, you know, choosing things that, that bring value to my life and not just like go to any small town in the, in the United States and small towns in the United States now scare me. I mean, they, yeah. they scared me in the past, but now more so. And so, um, I'm not going to go to Utah anymore. Sorry, Utah. Sorry, Utah. Um, Do better. Yeah. Then Erica yeah. might come back. <laughs> you owe her an apology. I don't yeah, know what be, you did, but better. you know, you know, be better. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I just really know what my limits are when I need to go to sleep, when I need to eat, when I need to, you know, step back from uh, a party or a gathering because it's just too much stimulation for me. I, I'm I'm very um, aware of, of my limits and mm-hmm. I respect them. And I don't, I don't, you know, go out of my way just to please other people when mm-hmm. it doesn't feel good, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's just I think women are supposed to uh, we we we're indoctrinated, right? Mm-hmm. To to think that we're supposed to always be available and be helpful and be loving and be supportive. You know, it's like yeah. sometimes I just want to stare out my window for like an hour, you know. Yeah. I don't I can't be everything all the time. It's just totally. not possible. Not possible at all. Um okay, I want to talk about that essay on Buddhism. Uh, in mental health, because you connected in the essay, you connect religion and sort of your past with religion and mental health. And I'm wondering how you thought to draw lines between those two things and how they feel maybe linked or at odds in your mind. Oh, boy. I think originally Catholicism was very bad for my psyche. (laughs) It was terrible for me as a girl growing up. You know, I felt like I was dirty. I felt like I, you know, had unclean thoughts and <laughs> that I was bad because I kissed a boy or I thought about it or, right. you know, I, I wore something short or, you know, I flirted with someone, you know, I had all of this shame because I was supposed to be pious and pure. And it wasn't like the way that the, my parents ever imagined you know like I decided very early on that Catholicism was hurtful to me and to Mm -hmm. women and um that was very upsetting because I I was rejecting this tradition that they had given me Mm. and so that was a a a point of contention for us for a long time um not so much anymore but I I realized that it it was bad for my mental health to to believe these things about women and myself uh, and so when I found Buddhism, I realized that religion didn't have to oppress me, mm. that it could uplift me, that it could make me more whole, that it could make me more at peace with myself and the world. And and it, I was able to make sense of, you know, a lot of suffering. You know, I didn't really have a reason for it before it was just like well god wanted it that way Mm. that to me isn't a very good explanation and so Mm. in buddhism we think about karma and cause and effect and how you know there is no god puppeteer in the sky like trying to control our our thoughts and our our movements that that's just not true there's there's autonomy there's agency there's you know self-reliance and so many different beautiful aspects of of buddhism that made me feel like maybe i could endure this horrible world because mm-hmm. sometimes it has been so intense like why am i alive what is the point of this um especially as a young girl i was like i don't have choices so what's the point yeah you know yeah um, okay, this is like such a tiny thing that you mentioned. And it's not tiny, but you do mention it in the book. Duende. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to tell a quick story. And then I'm going to ask you to explain it. But when I went to college, I went to NYU, and we had to take a class freshman year called writing the essay, the art in the world. And then the second semester was writing the essay, the world and art or something like that. Mm-hmm. And my teacher, this like, white lady, I don't remember her name. She was blonde. She was 
horrible. She was so annoying. <laughs> but she was obsessed with Duende. And our entire semester, everything was framed through Duende. And I think of the word all the time. But the fucked up part is that I do not remember. I did not remember what it meant until I read your book. She used to just be like, Duende is like this. And she would like draw like a figure eight or like do this like weird like arm <laughs> thing. I don't know. I don't think she explained it well. But I, when I saw it in your book, I was like, oh, my God, someone's talking about Duende. Like, uh, uh, arm gesture. <laughs> arm gestures wildly. So will you just tell people what Duende is and kind of explain it? Because it is sort of a through line throughout your book, even though you don't always mention it. You are working through things in the awesome hand gesture way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Duende is a really beautiful concept. And it comes from Federico Garcia Lorca, the Spanish poet who was murdered um, during the Spanish Civil War. He wrote about Duende being a sort of proximity to death. This awareness of death makes us more alive. And so when you see flamenco dancers, there is a darkness there. They're like stomping out some sort of malaise that they're experiencing, it seems. And and the duende there is is so powerful. It's palpable because uh, of, of the beauty of the dance. And same thing with writing. It's writing who, that has a really deep soul writing that has uh, a spirit that is not afraid of itself it's really d difficult to explain you know um but it's something that when i i read about it it made complete sense to me i'm like oh yeah that that's what i feel all the time like mm. my my writing has to have duende or else it's no good in my opinion it needs to take that sort of leap and risk and and be, you know, in the abyss a little bit for it to, I think, be interesting to do something different. And so I, I think about it a lot and I think about negative capability, which is from John Keats. And, you know, he wrote that in order to write poetry, you have to suspend your rational mind you have to come to terms with the fact that it might not make logical sense and, and that um, things are mysterious and, you know, poetry is full of mystery, but also a sort of exuberance mm. because you don't write poetry if you're not paying close attention, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and so it's all connected to me, you know? Yeah. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> I know that's like not a huge part of your book, but it really stuck out to me thanks to my overpriced education. Um, we're gonna well, I'm take sorry a that she was so whack. She was just, I mean, I hated the class. I people know this. I actually hate writing. I'm not a writer. Like I despise the process of writing. It just it is like torture for me. So mm -hmm. I think having to spend a whole year like learning how to write the essay or like write an essay was just generally unenjoyable like both of the teachers <laughs> I had I didn't like um but she was just like you know she was probably like an overworked adjunct professor like it's Oof. probably not her fault she probably fucking hated her life too but yeah. she did not bring a lot of uh the joyful part of the duende she didn't make me feel more alive it was a lot closer to the death part <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be right back taking care of your health isn't always easy but it should be at least simple that's why for the last Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have 
considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, we're back. I want to talk about the cover and the title. Were you involved with the cover at all? I know some authors are, some authors aren't, but I'm just curious if you had anything to do with this vibrant, bright, colorful paint strokes, maybe? I don't know. Computer paint strokes? I don't know, but um, it's beautiful. You know, I I look at it all the time. I'm like, how do they do this? Yeah. Um, it's, it's really lovely. And I have to thank my graphic designer for that. Um, the book designer, because I never would have thought to, uh, pick this, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it, it made perfect sense. Once I, I really thought about it, it, it felt really right because I didn't really want an image because the book already was saying so much yeah you know and 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 crying in the bathroom is a title that I've had since the beginning of this book oh really yeah yeah I came up with that seven years ago and I was like this will not change (laughs) I was did anyone try to change it no, no, okay. but it, I was ready to fight if I had to, because okay. <laughs> I felt like it encapsulates so much of what mm-hmm. I'm talking about. And so that's how it came to be. And, the, you know, there was like concern about it being similar to crying in H Mart, which oh. I understand. Um, I felt that it was still different enough. And also I had this for so long that I was not willing to part. So um, that's so funny. That didn't even cross my mind. And I've read that book until you're saying mm. that right now. I it didn't. I feel like crying in the bathroom is like such a relatable experience for probably a lot of people. Um, yeah. And so to me, that feels like a very contained idea, whereas crying in H Mart feels like a very specific to that story. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I, I've never cried in an H Mart. Like that yeah. feels like a thing, but I'm like crying in the bathroom. Like we've been there. Yeah. You're crying. You got to go to the bathroom. Don't, don't let your boss see you. Or like, exactly. you know, you're on a date and it's horrible. And you got to go. like, there's just so many reasons you could be crying in the bathroom, mm-hmm. but crying in H Mart to me, it just like, I didn't until you're saying that I'm literally like, wow, I can't believe I didn't think. So I don't think that they're linked that much at all, except That's for that perfect. they have crying in. I was not concerned about it. Yeah. I don't, but, I don't think you need to be, of course, yeah. now I'm going to get a million DMS of people like, how could you not think of that? It was and it's right there. <laughs> oh God! Well, that, don't, never, nobody tell me that I'm an idiot today. To stop! Thanks. Yeah, people, don't tell me. People have an opinion on dumb shit all the time. So. Oh, don't I know it? <laughs> um, don't I know? But also, my DMs are a great place to get information when I'm like, I say the wrong thing, and then I find out about it instantly because everyone likes to let me know. Oh no, it wasn't Erica. It was Samantha. I'm like, okay, thanks. Uh- <laughs> oh boy. Okay. 
What's not in this book that you wish could be in this book? You know, I think about that sometimes because I have some really good stories. Everyone's like, oh, you wrote your whole life. I'm like, I did not write my whole life. There's <laughs> Part a two. lot more. Um, it's the time that I spent in Mexico when I was studying abroad. That's that's kind of what I wish I would have written about because it was a really funny slash sad experience for me um i was going through a breakup and i was just a mess mm. i was just drinking and drinking and not eating and i felt very lonely and you know i i feel that there's a lot to say about that time and mm-hmm. then also i went to my first strip club there and that <laughs> okay. was really That's interesting yeah <laughs> and that place was fascinating so i feel like that will emerge at some point. I, I really want to write that story because it's it's a story that I think I would have fun working on. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked the ways that you talked about your own life in comparison to the lives of your mother and your grandmother and the women that came before you and your family and the ways that like we think about what a choice actually is and what a choice isn't. I don't know. I just found that to be really, again, that was one of the things that I was like, I've never thought about this in this way kind of thing. So I really liked that. Um, How did you know you were done with the book? How did you know that you had made like a complete thing? Um, I wasn't quite sure. I mean, I felt (laughs) like this was the best thing that I could write. You know, I took it as far as I could. And then my agent looked it over and then my editor eventually looked it over and I added another essay. But yeah, I felt that there was no way I could improve what I've written by myself. And Mm -hmm. so let's, let's try to see what the world has to say about it. And so um, when I showed it to my agent, she was really pleased and I made some changes and, and then um, we sold it at auction and it was bananas i just didn't (laughs) even understand what was going to happen and you know i met with many different editors and it was really exciting but yeah to get to that point i i had to rewrite this thing multiple times you know Mm. i i always do this thing where i um print the whole document and then i write it all over again wow so that's what I did with these last two books and it works because it makes me pay attention to language more. It makes me cut things out that feel unnecessary. I remember to include other things. And so that whole process is incredibly important uh, in my revision. And yeah. And then of course, you know, with my editor, I don't know how many times I've revised it. It's, Mm just hard to remember it's all blur now it was just a lot of work yeah will you say which essay you added the last one okay um okay since we're on process let's do my favorite how did you write this book where were you how many hours a day how often do you write do you listen to music are you having snacks and beverages that part's important (laughs) are there rituals are there candles is there a yoga session before after like set the scene of your writing well where to begin um i write in many different places now i have my beautiful office here in the attic of my house and it's been really wonderful to have like a cozy place where I can look out the window no one disturbs me I could work and and feel like I forget what is happening outside in the world and so this has been really nice but before this I mean I I've written on planes I've written on trains I've written in different countries I've written you know, in bed, uh, sometimes in a notebook that I, I carry. Uh, I take walks a whole lot and that helps my process. I, I, I seem to like really figure things out when I when I take a walk. Um, and so, you know, now that I'm more stable, much of it takes place here in at my desk. But when I was single, I was traveling, I was doing this and that. I, I was just 
really writing wherever I could and wherever the inspiration struck me. I always listened to, to that pull, you know? Yeah. What about snacks and beverages? Oh, yeah, of course. Many snacks. Um, <laughs> yes. I like I like hot chips. I like chips. I like kombucha. Okay. Uh, what well, is I there like a flavor of kombucha that you watermelon? Okay, interesting. It's very good. And mm-hmm. everyone else in my life seems to think it's disgusting, but I stand by it. Okay. Um, and what else? You know what? I smoke weed, you know, okay. whatever. I'm not ashamed. Yeah, I'm I'm always just moving around and sometimes I you know stretch, sometimes I work out, sometimes I like sit and meditate for a while. It's kind of all over the place. Also reading, reading is part of my writing process obviously and so um I have to read a lot in order for me to feel nourished intellectually and emotionally. Do you read in a in close proximity to writing or do you just have like a healthy reading practice that sort of sustains your work or some people like to sit down and read like 10 pages before they start writing or is it more just like you read a lot generally it's more general I'm always reading and sometimes I read when I'm writing sometimes I don't Um, it all depends I'm kind of um, a a free spirit if you will when it comes to writing you know like I don't have a set schedule. I write when I really want to do it. And even if it sucks, like I, I I do it because something is, is pushing me to do so. Um, and so for me, there's really no limit. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I always make sure to have a pen. Um, I mean, sometimes I, I type things into my phone, but that doesn't feel right to me. I'm I'm kind of romantic in that way. When, what's your sign? I'm a Gemini and everybody hates us. That is true. People do hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure because like I'm I'm a very rigid person. And so like for me, I have like a lot of habits around my creativity. Like I need a lot of like this has to happen. I have to have this. I have uh-huh. to prepare in this way. And what you're saying is like very opposite of me. So I was like, oh, I wonder what. But Gemini makes sense because that's like the duality. Yeah, right? we're like all over you can the place. Do, yeah, you can do it in a lot of different ways. Um, Wait, what's your sign? I'm a Leo, but famously, I, I was born the last <laughs> day of cancer. And I didn't find out I was a Leo until I was an adult when someone did my chart. But I was born so late at night that the sun had transitioned into Leo. So I'm like a real true cusp person. Oh, wow. See, yeah. I don't even know what that means. It just means I'm like a mix of both. But when people meet me, everyone thinks I'm a Leo because I have a pretty big personality. But if you know me, I'll, most of my close friends are like, you're a cancer. Like, nice try. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, I think I have big Leo outside energy, but inside I have big cancer energy. Anyways, what's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? License? Oh my gosh, that's an impossible word. Yes, what is that? correct. That's stupid. It there's like where does the S <laughs> go and where does the C go? Because I know they're both there, but like, good luck, good luck to you trying to spell that. Anyone? And then it, yeah, it makes me feel very stupid. I'm like, why do I not know how to? I can't spell, spell anything. I, it, it's like really embarrassing. Where I'll be trying to Google a word and I'll be spelling it so wrong, the autocorrect won't even be able to help me. And I'm oh just, I'm just like, what is like, I can't, I, this happened to me a few days ago. I can't remember what it was, but I was like, it's lost now. Like I, I can't even find the word to Google the thing that I want because I can't even get close to spelling it. Um, and then if you tell a friend, they're going to laugh. Well, I tell my husband, I'm just like, so if you were going to spell license, like what direction, <laughs> like where would you start? And then like keep going till you get to the end, <laughs> you know, just help, please. Oh, <laughs> I love it. Um, okay. You, in addition to being a writer, you teach people, mm-hmm. college students things. How does that help or hurt your ability to write? Like, does it get in the way? Does it give you ideas? Maybe it does both. Both. But for the most part, it really helps. I feel like teaching keeps me very closely engaged with text. And so Mm. I am always like learning 
different things. I, I learn a lot from my students. I I really love the act of teaching. I think it's really fun and it brings me a lot of joy. And so talking about books with students when they also feel strongly about them is, is, is very fun. And that's something that um, I always want to have in my life. I, I, I think young people bring so much energy to me and in my life that um, I just want to keep teaching forever. Um, on the other hand, there are times where, of course, I get tired and there's all right. this crap I need to do and I have to grade and I, I hate grading and, you know, all I want to do is like hole up in my attic and, and write things yeah. and read whatever I want, but it's not possible because I have all these responsibilities and so the, that's the only time that I ever feel frustrated, but it's really not that bad. And I, for the most part, just love the experience of it. Yeah. Do you, what, what's the title of your course that you are teaching currently? Does it have a great name or something? Well, I had Latina memoir okay. a few um, quarters back and then I, I, I taught American writers of color, Oh, which I designed. How do you even narrow that down? Like, how do you even come up with, with like a, a syllabus for that's like so many books? I mean, of course, but I, I give them like just a, an intro into this world yeah. because many of them haven't read these types of books before. Right. A lot of them were like, I've never read a, a book by a Native American person or a Latino well. person, Latinx person. And so I feel like it's my job to expose them to all of all of these great books that, you know, their teachers probably did not yeah. expose them to. Do you um so I've had people on who are professors before who say that they pick some books that they know and then they always put in at least one book that they haven't read that they've been like really wanting to read into their syllabus. That. Is that what you do? <laughs> I do, but you know what? It's it's been um a challenge at, at times when when I I get the book and I'm reading it and it's a it's just a chore to read you know mm. sometimes yes it's, just, I can it's not it's not good it's not what you wanted and you still have to teach that so yeah. you better get it together and figure it out and so that's that makes me hesitate sometimes to do that but yes I, I've done that do you ever find I mean for me a person who picks a lot of books that sometimes do not pan out I find that some of the books I don't like actually end up like being the best ones for conversation or the best ones for like, like when I have these book club dialogues or whatever, that if I have issues with the book, it ends up being like more fun to talk about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There are some books that I wish I would have had a book club for. Yeah. To, <laughs> talk to shit. Really, yeah. Talk shit. Or, oh, yeah. or to, I guess, try to figure out what the hype was all about mm -hmm. that's sometimes very confusing yeah but uh yeah i i think that from now on for the most part i'm gonna choose books that have been vetted because it's it's tough teaching yeah. something you don't like that's for yeah, sure that's true yeah okay i know this question is a little bit disrespectful please don't hate me but do you know what comes next <laughs> Well, first of all, it's not. Um, but thank you. Well, sometimes I feel like it is. It's like your book's not even out yet. And I'm like, so what are you going to do next? Like, but no, I'm just, I, I if you it. know, if you have an idea, please share. If not, we don't have to do this one. Well, you know, I've got a number of things going on. One being the I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter movie, which sh should be in production very soon. And I don't really have a lot of details on that, but it's it's something that I will be involved in. And so that's really cool. Um, also, I am working on a children's book. And Ooh. yeah, that's been really fun. I wrote it about my daughter for my daughter. And um, I'm, I'm still working on it right now. And then um, I write poems a lot uh, these days. So I'm really, really trying to immerse myself in poetry because that's what makes all this other writing possible for me mm -hmm. is to have that foundation. So mm -hmm. um, there's nothing like it, you know, writing a poem. I, I feel like it's a spiritual experience or something like that. It's hard to really describe. Yeah. 
For people who love crying in the bathroom, what are some other books you might recommend that are maybe in conversation with what you've created? A Dream Called Home by Reina Grande, who is just a really stunning writer. She's so great. This is a memoir about her, you know, growing up in Mexico, immigrating, becoming a writer. It's it's just such a a fascinating story. And she's just very skilled in in her writing abilities. And so um, that one, Sandra Cisneros, A House of My Own, where um, she writes about so many different things. But I think what really um, moved me about it was this notion of being like a young woman of color wanting more wanting Mm. a life that you never thought would be available to you but pursuing it anyway and um i feel very inspired by that and then oh um for brown girls by prisca mojica dorcas rodriguez i hope i got the order of that correct she is amazing she writes about trauma and um you know, growing up in a very strict, conservative, evangelist environment and, and how damaging that is for for women. And, you know, I have a list of books that I made for my students, actually. Mm-hmm. I have a Google Doc where I, like, I, I just keep adding books to it um, because my students have requested that I, I do that. And I was very happy to do so. That's awesome. Are you going to share it with the rest of us? Or Oh, yeah. Have... I could. Oh, I could yeah. Share Will it. you send the link? I can put it in the show notes for people. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Last question. If you could have one person dead or alive read your book, who would you want it to be? Toni Morrison hmm. or James Baldwin. Can't, can't argue with that. Per- perfect people. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we would have like really great discussions if if I was able to to talk to them. Maybe in my dreams I can conjure them. Yes. Because my my writing is like very much in in the spirit of of what they wrote and um I I feel very influenced by them as people and as writers. I love that. All right, everyone. Crying in the Bathroom is out now in the world as you're listening to this. You can get it wherever you got your books. Erica, you do the audiobook, right? I do, yeah. And you can hear my really aggressive Chicago accent, which you've <laughs> heard here as well. I don't think it's really aggressive Chicago <laughs> accent at all. I've heard really aggressive <laughs> makes me uncomfortable. Your, yours is not even close, but okay, sure. Good, good. Um, but anyway, everyone, you can get a book you get the book wherever you get your books. You can get the audiobook if you want to hear more of Erica's allegedly very aggressive Chicago accent. Erica, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This was lovely. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Erica for being my guest. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to Rebecca Marsh for helping to make this episode possible. Reminder, the Stacks Book Club pick for July is Season of Migration to the North by Tayeb Saleh, which we will be discussing on July 27th with Elamine Abdel Mahmoud. If you like the show and want inside access to it, head over to patreon.com slash the Stacks to join the Stacks Pack. Please make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 